All right, welcome back to the Tuttle Block Live, a special presentation of the Tuttle Block Podcast, the show about Canadian theatre designers, their history, and their craft. I am your host, Michael Cruz, coming to you from Cataraqui or Kingston, land of the Huron-Wendat, Algonquin, Mississauga, and Haudenosaunee people. Tonight, we present what will prove to be another important and fascinating discussion about grounding Indigenous art and design on mixed-race teams, a conversation reflecting on creating spaces and processes for Indigenous theatre with anti-appropriative practices and internation collaborations. This is another co-pro with the Associated Designers of Canada, who are generously providing a bit of funding for the moderators and the panelists. Please subscribe to the YouTube channel below, uh, at the button, uh, at the button below. You know, English is hard. And please visit the titleblock.com for more extensive bios and listen to all the episodes from the Titleblock podcast. Let me introduce tonight's panel. Uh, Yolanda Bunnell. She, her, is a queer, two-spirit, Anishinaabe, Ojibwe, and South Asian performer, playwright, and poet from Fort William First Nation in Thunder Bay, Ontario. Now based in Takaranto, Yolanda's Dora-nominated solo show, Bug, appeared at Theatre Pass Marai in February 2020, co-presented by Manadunes Collective, which she runs with Michif or Métis artist Cole Alvis. Yolanda, welcome to the Tuttle Block Live. Miigwech, Ani, Bojo, Yolanda Nindishnikaz, Kishiba Mainka Nindigo Jibwemon, Makwanindodam, Port William Post Nation Donjaba, Dogron Doninda. I speak my language. Um, somebody once said that uh, this, we speak our language because it makes our ancestors happy. And so whenever I introduce myself, I try to introduce myself in Anishinaabemowin because it wasn't taught to me. So uh, that's how I introduce myself now. So, miigwech uh, for having me. Thank you. Michelle Cutler is a sound designer and a composer based in Vancouver who works primarily with the, at the intersection of music and storytelling. She is a board member for the ADC and a core member of the Vancouver Design Forum. Michelle Cutler, welcome to the Title Block Live. Hello. Thank you for having me. So happy to be here. Excellent. Uh, Samantha McHugh is an Anishinaabe, Bekwe, and Neduden costume designer and anti-racism advocate based in Ottawa, Ontario. Uh, you can find more information about her at her website at sammchewdesign.com. Samantha, welcome to the Title Block Live. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. And Emily Susanna is a projection set and lighting designer based out of Jijaje or Montreal. Uh, they are the co-founder of Potato Cakes Digital, a production design and digital arts collective whose mandate orbits around the integration of technology into traditional art forms and the exploration of how visual art can help facilitate the telling of a story. Emily, welcome back to the Title Block Live. Hi, thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. And finally, our host for this evening, Kim Senclip Harvey, is a proud silk Silicatine, Tanaka, and Dadel woman, sorry, Dakel woman, who is, oh, a fire <laughs> and is a fire creator, indigenous theorist, and cultural evolutionist. She completed the BFA program at UBC and is currently doing her master's in creative writing at UVic. Kim is interested in indigenous creation works, dismantling and troubling colonial and neo-capitalistic systems, with a particular focus on the resurgence of indigenous matriarchal-led systems and frameworks especially those amplifying the emancipatory journeys of those enduring state oppression. She's also really good at Buck Hunter, like really good. <laughs> she is also the moderator of tonight's panel. Kim, welcome to the Title Block Live. Hi, Hulisa. My name's Kim. I'm so grateful to be here. 
Thank you so much for that introduction. And thank you so much, uh, Michael and Michelle, for having us. Uh, I just want to honor all the traditional territories that we're on right now, um, all the artists who kind of came before us, who allowed us uh, to be here and hold this space. Um, Michelle, I just want to honor all the work that you do with uh, ADC, uh, the advocacy work and the championing that you do. Uh, you really embody the fact that this kind of advocacy work is not something you do at the latter part of your career. It's not something you do after you've endured all the challenges. You're really taking this head on and really was um, pivotal to creating this space as we uh, in engage and endured our own frustrations as people working uh, in collaborative practices. Um, and I do want to take a little bit of time to let each person introduce themselves because what I want this panel to also be is like an embodied learning and practice. So we're not just talking about the work, we're actually embodying the creative practice as we go. And a big part of working with internations, working within mixed race is something that we called and Dr. Lindsay Lachance uh, studied and illuminated and offered to us is this notion of presencing, uh, meeting the present moment with our ancestors, with all organisms, with our histories, with the future generations and presencing our diasporic uh, journeys to get to this moment allows us to bear witness to each person in a way that we might not be able to. It also gives a space for us to arrive here in this moment. I think sometimes when we, um, particularly because I, I can only say, and I'll preface the whole conversation with this first, we are speaking from our experiences as Indigenous nations, specific and non-Indigenous uh, creators. We do not speak for all of Indigenous theater. We don't speak for all collaborative practice. That's an impossible feat and task we would never take on. We've assembled today to share our experiences, and that's really what they are. Uh, do not go into a rehearsal hall and say, well, Kim Sanclip Harvey said, oh my gosh, Yolanda Bunnell told us, Sam McHugh, you know, said we have to, you know, please, please don't uh, misunderstand this space holding for that. Um, but one of the things that I tend to find when uh, Indigenous and non-Indigenous groups are getting together, uh, one, and I've said it before, white folks want to jump in real quick. You know, they want to get right to the work. You know, within an hour, we've eaten donuts, and then we're going to read the script, and we're going to start blocking the show. And in an hour, day two by the morning, we're going to go back, and everyone should be off book. And I should know everything about you except anything about you. Uh, and for Indigenous people, that's very uncomfortable, I find. The artists that I've worked with and tried to create space are like, well, I always say, whoa, 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 who's your grandma? And so this active presencing, this active introduction is actually something I'm still challenged by every time it happens because a part of it for me is meeting people where they are right now. A part of it for me as an artistic leader is to not know and just assume Yolanda is a good friend of mine so I know exactly where she's at. It's my job as an artistic leader and practitioner to hold the space for Yolanda and Emily and all parts of the team to go where are they right now in this moment, you know? It would be very strange if we walked into rehearsal hall right now and didn't talk about the Black Rebellion. It'd be very strange to go into the rehearsal hall right now and not talk about uh, the BIPOC challenges that we're enduring right now. And a part of presencing, the I, I take it on as an act to say, okay, let me breathe, let me get to this moment, let me hear what pieces of their cultural heritage they're gifting me in this moment, and how can I respond accurately, like right here and now. So I want to go around and let this group, because I, you know, we've all worked together and I love you all dearly, and so I, I hope we can keep that intimate feeling. Feeling. Um, 
but I, I want to hear where all of you are at. It's been a while since some of us have seen each other and a lot has occurred. And this is a complex topic that we're talking about, uh, that we're all in the midst of navigating. And I said in the email this morning, you know, Dr. Adrienne Keene, who if you haven't checked out her site, Native Appropriations, she runs a blog, talks about the fact that being a good feminist is thinking out loud. And a big part of this conversation is us thinking out loud, falling on our faces, making offers, going into investigations, reflecting, coming back to a practice. So we're going to have, uh, we're going to be good feminists and good practitioners by thinking out loud today. But uh, Yo-Yo, maybe we'll go to you and then Sam and then Michelle and Emily and just how you doing, where you're from, who's your grandma? Miigwech, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Kim. Um, and Miigwech for uh, having me and, and for bringing this practice forward. Um, I also uh, I try to hold space in the same way because I think it is also very important. Um, yeah, I, uh, uh, so, um, as I said earlier, I'm on Anishinaabe Ojibwe. And so, um, I am in, uh, Digirondo, which is the Mohawk pronunciation for Toronto. Um, and I always think about how my ancestors moved through this space when I think about the Anishinaabe, um, migration story, which is like the seven virus prophecy. Uh, and so, um, that, you know, they, that my ancestors um, moved through uh, St. Lawrence River and up and around and some settled in Manitoulin and then moved up towards uh, Northwestern Ontario, which is where, where my family settled. Um, and uh, and uh, yeah, so I think about that a lot when I'm here, like as I'm here on this land about that, my how um, embodied this land is and, and who's come through here. So um uh, about the who's your grandma question, uh, I, I actually have been in talking to my cousins a lot lately from the res and Ooh, uh, yeah, yeah, oh, during the pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> my cousin Helen uh, is uh, living on the res and is like recently just started, um, or not recently, she's been doing it for a while, but has been uh, making like working with birch bark a lot. Uh, and so she's been making like earrings and, and t-shirts and all kinds of things with her designs on them. And so there's this really beautiful um, work of um, sovereign, like sovereign work and like and self-governance work that's happening on my reserve. And I think it's really a beautiful thing. And so we've been talking a lot and we've been recently talking about um, our great grandmother, uh, grandma, my grandma, Helen Bannon, uh, who, uh, you know, I found out is, did a lot of beadwork and was also a storyteller. Um, and I remember, I remember her, she, she passed away when I was probably about four years old. So I, I actually do have vivid memories of her and sitting on her lap and her telling me stories. And, um, and so I like to think that a lot of my uh, weaving abilities come from her, that there's sort of like that, um, spiritual or, uh, you know, um, ability through bloodline that kind of comes down uh, when I think about her. So there's something um, really nice about thinking about my my grandma, my grandma's line. Um, and you've been beating. Like I was like, I, I got gifted this gorgeous stunning piece. Like when we talk about work being relational, Yo-Yo just threw in some mail this stunning piece. Like it's beautiful. Thank you. You're welcome. Yeah, I, I, uh, I it's, it, it's been um, the night that the um, fire started in Minneapolis after George Floyd was killed. 
I sat down and needed to get my emotions out somehow and beading was the first way I was able to do it and I the first piece I beaded I sent to a, a friend of mine Emma Jade and um and uh it was just full of fire and so like I I've been yeah beating these pieces for people randomly and just sending them out because I I've been needing the to get it out of me so um I'm trying to put a lot of love and emotion into each each and somebody said too they're like our beadwork, all of our beading, like earrings, everything, it's not a um, product that it's all art. Every single piece of beadwork that an Indigenous person makes is an art piece. It's not just a product to be sold, that it's, that it, uh, there's something special that goes into it. So um, I really took that to heart and I wasn't think I didn't think about that until halfway through all of my work and I was like, oh, look at that. I'm doing another art form and I didn't even realize it. Um, which I didn't, I didn't learn how to bead until we were doing Kamlupa and Wanda, um, or Juanita, sorry, Juanita in Saskatoon invited us all to her house and uh, taught us how to bead. And that's where I learned how to bead. And then everything else after that the, um, was self-taught. Oh. It's beautiful, matriarchs, matriarchs, big ups to our matriarchs, man. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks, yo, yo. Sam McHugh, so good to see you, babe. <laughs> oh, I'm so happy to be here. It's so good to see everyone. Um, so uh, for those who don't know me, um, my name is Sam. My traditional name is Nigenganawabikwe, which means woman who looks ahead uh, in Anishinaabe, uh, Anishinaabe Uh I don't speak my language, uh, unfortunately. My dad is in the process of uh, re of learning the language and uh, I haven't reached that point yet but I am certainly looking forward to getting to that point. Um, I am Anishinaabekwe and Nederden uh, which is from Nederden territories in northern BC um, and I was raised in Vancouver on the Squim, Tsleil-Waututh and Salish territories. Uh, so and, and I was in Vancouver until I moved away for university. So, you know, when I, often when I introduce myself, I will uh, acknowledge, you know, my blood heritage, but also, uh, you know, the, the cultures and, and the land that kind of influenced uh, my, my growing up and, and how I was raised. So that's kind of where I come from and what I, I bring into uh, my research and my history and my space. Um, yeah, I'm currently in, uh, in Ottawa, which is, uh, always. That's Emily. <laughs> Emily, what are you doing? There, there's a bit, there's a band on the street. Oh. That's like, like a marching band. I can't control them. They're just, they're just there. I am um, watching something on YouTube. I know, no, but what is like, Wheel of Fortune? I I was like looking to see if my like border was lighting up at all, which usually once you know that sound is going through. That's also what the shifty eyes have been. Is, okay. You um, have a soundtrack, I'll, that's fine. I'll, I'll, I'll mute for now. Hopefully they'll meander uh, oh. to some other street. <laughs> okay, Sam, sorry. sorry oh my goodness. No, no way. Um, <laughs> it's not every day you get a marching band. So. <laughs> um, so yeah, anyway, 
that's you know who I am, where I come from. Uh, my grandma uh, is on my mom's side as a residential school survivor, uh, and she's a language speaker uh, and also a very talented beater. Uh, speaking of beating. Uh, and my grandmother on my dad's side is a uh, Scottish and German settler uh, heritage. Um, and yeah, and I'm, I'm really loving the beating conversation because I, uh, my, my great grandmother on my dad's side was also a very talented beater. So I've got beaters on both sides, but I wow. was teaching myself at the beginning of the pandemic when, when I was like, I need things to do. Yeah. So I've been, I've been diving into that uh, practice as well, which is really interesting. So, so yeah. good. And Sam was the costume designer on Kamloopa, um, and uh, blew my mind and my spirit away. And it, uh, it's speaking of like matriarchs intersecting. I remember when your mom came to the show, Sam. I don't know if she told you this, but I was like backstage, and then I came back out, and she was like, "I'm Sam's mom," and I gave her like the big <laughs> hug, and I was like, "Your daughter, your daughter, like." Just so proud, like proud mama all around, proud matriarch. And also it was just such an honor that that continued to be the joy that matriarchs came out after that show. And I remember Gina Yacht, Caitlin's mom, love Gina, was so excited about everything. But meeting your mom was really such an honor. So thank you for introducing yourself and presenting all of that knowledge. Like just thinking about the fact that, you know, beaters on both your sides and how land intersects with your work and how you really think about that trajectory when it comes to design. These, you know, presencing and, and landing into the work is for me as a leader trying to think about, okay, how can I best hold space for you? And that was really beautiful. So thanks for being so generous with us, Sam. Uh, Cutler, Michelle Cutler. Hey, uh, yeah, I'm Michelle. I do sound and music stuff. Um, I grew up here on Coast Salish territory and like, boy, have I never been as grateful to be on this land as I have over the last few months um, with everything going on in the pandemic and the amount of time I've spent in these parks and with these trees and uh, when there's nothing else we can do but be outside in the land, like it's a really new level of appreciation for this place. Um, I am Jewish. I, my ancestors all come from Eastern Europe by way of Montreal. And then uh, my parents came out here. And uh, right now, where I'm at right now is I've just had some really, um, I've had the pleasure and joy of playing some music um, in some public spaces with some great friends, which has been wonderful. And also realizing that I don't think I was prepared for the level of stress that going back into this work is going to put on us um, now as we go in with um, this uh, awareness and caution of the pandemic and what that means for our mental health. It was so much harder than I thought it was gonna be and really great learning. And I'm continuing to, to figure out how to navigate that. But I think that in addition to everything else we're talking about, we have to take so much care of yourselves and each other as we go forward if we're trying to move back because um, like it's it's just crazy it's crazy it's a crazy situation we're in and we want to make the art but it's gonna be a whole new thing so mm -hmm. that my head's are, is is been around that but in general like um kim and i have had some really amazing conversations at emily um around all these things and i feel like in the last year or two especially i've been starting to learn a lot a lot a lot about these internation collaborations and um the kinds of things that uh, us as settler artists in the context of these projects can begin to offer and learn and how our, our 
presence is helpful and sometimes not. Uh, so I'm really excited to talk about it. Yeah. Uh, Michelle and I worked on Skyborn, and Michelle is also uh, on a sound team for Break Horizons, a rocking Indigenous justice story. Thank you, Michelle. Emily, is the marching band still here? Uh, no, they appear to have found another street to march down. Uh, Michelle, are you part of a marching band? Is that what you mean by outdoor music? <laughs> well, I actually did do some roving, some roving stuff earlier on in the pandemic with some friends yes. where we sang at people's balconies, but not with a marching band. That's delightful. Um, Love it. Hi, yeah. So I'm I'm Emily. I was uh, born in Ottawa, um, but I've lived in Montreal for the past um, six-ish years now. Um, uh, in terms of family, on my mom's side, um, there are Scottish-Irish settlers who settled in uh, Malil, which is an area about uh, an hour and a half away from Montreal. And then on my dad's side, my grandmother is from France and my grandfather's from Morocco and they emigrated Ooh. during World War II or at some point sort of after, like, around then. They were displaced in some way that I don't, unfortunately, really know. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I'm, I'm doing all right. I mean, like, it's a pandemic, and there's, like, great social upheaval, so all right, I think, is, like, a relative statement. Um, but trying to do my best to, like, take the time, it's, like, a mixture of, like, trying to work on like personal things and like upgrade skill sets and make art that I like want to make versus like job art. I mean, cause there is no job art. So that makes that choice a little easier. Um, and then also, you know, trying to look at how when theaters do reopen, we can have like more equitable, fair working conditions. So working with some of the theaters in Montreal and trying to figure out what that, looks like going forwards because like it's one of those things that's really frustrating when people are like we need to get back to work like get back to like the hustle and you're like but like it's garbage like we work in a garbage system why would we want to go back to that like and one of those things where people are you know one of the excuses that comes up a lot is like oh well we've programmed our space like three years in advance we can't like possibly make changes and you're like well you haven't programmed it now you have nothing so yeah <laughs> like now's the time <laughs> to make changes so like there's a mixture of like I sort of go back and forth between those two things and like also puttering away in my little balcony garden which is um a great solace in these times because when I when I lived at home I could we had like a big enough backyard that my mom and I could always grow things and then when I moved away um I haven't had like time or space and then this year, I don't really have space, but I do have time. And if time <laughs> balcony engineering projects can happen, then I can have fire escape switch chart. So, um, Thanks, Emily. Um, Emily has also worked with me on Kamlupa, Skyborn, and now Potato Cake Digital with her company. And Andrew will be working on Break Horizons uh, with the Arts Club and the Citadel. Um, I'll keep it really brief with myself. Uh, you can find a lot of information about me online. Uh, I come from the Silco Teen, Silk, Tunaka, and uh, Dekel Nations. 
Um, I also come uh, by way of most of my patriarchal patrilineal side uh, from Norway, uh, the Welsh region and Scotland. And, you know, in these times, I think it's very important to think about those diasporic journeys. And we're doing, a, I've been having a lot of time to work with my family to find more about our like Shohetmik Tunaka silk relations, uh, which has been incredibly important because of the work and the characters that I am uh, creating with break, but we'll get into that later. Um, I also want to take the time to honor, because I, I don't want to forget this, and I think it's really important that when people are assembling international teams, um, you know, I've learned the hard way that if I work with practitioners who aren't engaged citizens, who aren't active community members, who are constantly working on their knowledge, who are constantly working on their transformations uh, and anti-racist work, the work suffers because there's a lot of education I have to do. Uh, there's a lot of imperial conditioning where people kind of just show up and think it's the same old, the same old. And if there's one thing that you kind of take away from this uh, space making is that if the artists on this panel, Yolanda, Sam, Michelle, and Emily, are not only powerful artists and practitioners, but activists, change makers, uh, stakeholders within transformation in the community, these are uh, people, matriarchs, uh, ignited artists on the move, demanding accountability in many ways beyond just a play. And I find that with my aesthetic, with the way that I work, the uh, pushing of these boundaries and cultural evolution that is necessary for us to create work that I find igniting, exciting, necessary and urgent. And I really can't work with people who aren't uh, building their capacity like this panel is here. So. Uh, everybody, listen up. Listen yeah. up to what I have to say. Yolo, you do want to add to that, Yo-Yo, about how you create your teams as well? Yes, it's a similar, oh, similar thing. Um, uh, when when Cole and I work together, like Cole Elvis is my uh, partner in terms, um, we run Managing's Collective together. And uh, whenever we are thinking about teams, we've, we have worked with... Um, primarily indigenous designers, but we also are trying to work with like um, designers who are are definitely on the, the edge of like doing that decolonial work and doing that like good, strong, um, you know, safe uh, and safe work that keeps artists safe and, uh, and really thinking outside of those sort of colonial or imperial kind of boxes. Um, and I, I look at like who they worked with in the past and like what have they, what kind of um, eye they have and how that their work supports not just the story, but the people who are telling the storytellers that are telling the story as well. And, um, and so like for anybody that we've brought in to, to work with us, it, it, they all kind of fall into that same that category, um, and we have good discussions with them. And 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 if it's something that they're new, and a lot of these people I find are doing this work without even realizing it. And I think that there's a lot of people who are doing that, but aren't don't know how to name it yet, or don't quite know what it like where it falls because it is so like uh, unbelievable to have radical care within a, the theater industry, and so to be able to name that is some, I think sometimes jarring for folks. So, yeah. Yeah. 
Thanks, Yo-Yo. And uh, I just I just want to echo that again, that if you're an Indigenous young person looking to decolonize and indigenize your work, the homework, the due diligence of working with practitioners beyond their resume, beyond especially what white arts leaders or imperial leaders say, oh, they make a good they make a good show. They're a good designer really understand what that means for you and what you actually need with regards to that. Because for me, you know, there are good designers everywhere. There are, there are potent designers, but I need people who move beyond that. And I just can't afford the time where I don't have the spiritual desire to educate people beyond that. But before we dive in, I want to talk a little bit about uh, the concept of what is uh, grounded practice, what is anti-appropriative practice. And I think for the sake of this conversation, because one, there are so many versions of these ideologies, so many understandings of these definitions, we'll kind of use these ones for this conversation conversation, but please trouble it, please um, undermine it, uh, call task to it, anyone on the panel, if you, you're like, I'm not sure about that. Uh, we all have our own, but for the sake of this conversation, I think it's really important we have a metric to say, this is the definition that we're working off of for this conversation. And I kind of drafted one up knowing I've worked with all of you and I've, I, I relatively understand your values and way of working. Um, and also, uh, I don't think we talk about this enough. You know, we want to have like anti-culturally appropriate practice. What's culture? What's appropriation? What's practice? What's process? I don't know what that is for a lot of artists. And it's a part of my due diligence as a producer, as a creator, to understand what that means for everyone. And that's also why I'm really vocal about the way that I, uh, my, my position, I remember Clayton from The Electrics was like, we know why you do business, Kim. Everybody knows you're here for equity for indigenous femmes and matriarchs. That is very clear for us. And I make that clear so that when I do start working with people, people have no excuse to not understand who it is, what I stand for and why I do this work. But that being said, let's just talk about this for a second. What is culture? Um, culture for me are the constructs of the social group. Uh, they kind of compose the philosophy, the science, the mysticism, albeit the religion, the spirituality and the governance of a social group. So all of those things kind of create a culture for a group. And uh, when you add that together, you kind of get a heritage, just from my understanding. So when you look at a group of people, you take all of these elements and that is their culture. Um, when you talk about appropriation, uh, from my understanding, it is the taking and the usurping of that, appropriating it without permission or consent. So if we're going to talk about cultural appropriation, we're talking about taking cultural elements of a specific uh, group of this collective without permission and without consent. And I unfortunately have to list them in a way like spirituality, mysticism, philosophy, science, indigenous intelligence, um, siloing them, but really they are woven into the fabric of indigenous ontology. There wasn't art necessarily without governance. There wasn't governance without philosophy. There wasn't science without mysticism. That a way of looking at indigenous culture is that we don't silo it off to be managed the way imperial culture does. And so when you're working with an indigenous practitioner, you should be having these conversations. Yeah, Yo-Yo? Yeah, I would say too, like, um, I don't think it's, I, I don't, I would say that it's, it doesn't, it's not always uh, non-consensual. I think even something that I've said is that just because one person says it's okay doesn't mean that it's okay for everyone, but often there are Indigenous people, and if we're, if we're going to speak of that, like that there are Indigenous people that be like, yeah, that's fine. Um, whereas it's harmful for others. It's like not everybody, you know, not one Indigenous person can speak on behalf of all Indigenous people. My sort of philosophy with that is that if it's harmful, 
to a person and cultural appropriation is harmful that if it's harmful to a group of people and you've got one person that's like yeah go ahead and the other person's like actually that's harmful um maybe you shouldn't do it yeah. so but just to say that like consent isn't always the like marker of that yeah totally absolutely and consent i say that in the mention of like culture being uh, a group of a group of people's collective culture so culture you can get culture of one person and that's their culture consent but when we speak about a culture of a race a culture of a nation consent acknowledgement and respect has to be of that of the collective and this is why it's so complicated because when you go from uh, indigenous groups to nations to tribes to kin to individual uh, getting consent, getting acknowledged, and getting permission might be very different for each family. It might look very different for each nation, each tribe, each clan. Um, it's really uh, takes a lot of due diligence and work. I would I would reference the way that my great grandmother Edith, my grandmother Emma, mother Sokotin, it was different in each generation. There would be words when they were all alive. It was so fascinating to see them go, wait, what was that word? Wait, what was that? What was that thing? So that's in part cultural understanding, but also in a, a, the presence of cultural evolution, that the language was changing within the generations and getting consent on a word was really fascinating and really um, interesting. But I agree, Yo-Yo, just like we can't talk for everyone, you should not be like, well, Kim Harvey said it's okay, so we should do this. And then you have a whole group of people saying, hello, I'm being yeah. harmed or negatively impacted by this. I need to have a conversation. Um, for me, one thing that I wanna talk about before we jump into the first one, and we're gonna come in hot, is kind of what I was just saying about cultural evolution. For me, the way that I assemble teams and the reason that I create art and artistic ceremony is for cultural evolution. That's the basis of the podcast that I have, the Indigenous Cultural Evolution. Um, it's my responsibility as a Salish storyteller to meet the present. I think it's a tactic of white supremacy and colonialism to primordialize and put Indigenous people into a stasis of culture and ability. And for us to break ourselves free is to evolve culture, is to have agency, is to be the authorities on how we practice our ceremony, how we identify Indigenous people, and how we create our art. And that can tend to scare a lot of people. I've had traditionalists come at me and say, that's not traditional, that's not this, that's not, you know, you evolved this you move that and it's my teachings that that is actually my responsibility that yes we can literally bang the same drum song for 10,000 years and we also have to have versions dialects auxiliary components to that practice and for me I'm not a traditionalist in my community. I'm not a language speaker. I do participate in ceremony. A lot of ours were oppressed, but I'm reclaiming that practice. My responsibility as an urban displaced indigenous Salish woman is to understand those cultural heritages and then also evolve them. I wanna reference and honor uh, Bonita Lawrence who wrote this book that I think if you're working with indigenous people, international collaborations to read Real Indians and Others, Mixed Blood Urban Native Peoples. And she speaks the need for us to need to engage with a level of modernity for us not just to survive but thrive and she also speaks to the notion that we as indigenous peoples must have the authority on determining who's indigenous and I extend this ideology uh, that we also have to have authority on the determination of, of what our culture is which brings us to collaborators and artistic creators like Yolanda like Sam who are holding space to create cultural evolutions and innovations within theatrical practices. Um, 
So I said, let's start really hot. Let's start in with the hot topic. What makes us uncomfortable within uh, Western notions of creation? What uh, has, uh, which still shocks us in ways? What is the um, practices that are not grounded? And also, you know, Sam McHugh and I were having a little chat yesterday over the gram talking about where are the responsibilities of artistic leaders and theater companies to ensure indigenous projects, artistic ceremonies, have the cultural competent staff and processes to ensure that our sacred pieces, our sacred stories, our elements of ceremony are being respected and not dismantled like other imperial pieces. So I want to throw it to Yo-Yo and then Sam and then we'll We'll get the the white portion of the crew to talk in the internation aspects of it but yo yo like what 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 frightens you what scares you what's you what have you seen where you've been like oh, oh my gosh uh well <laughs> so many things um what what scares me is i mean when i think like the the boiling it down to a seed is basically like the the un, unsafety or the not not being safe and i mean like physically emotionally spiritually um when i think about um a lone indigenous actor in a show my my chest gets tight like i immediately i'm like no one's there for that person like because often often you know the the tokenizing of BIPOC artists, when you, when one, when there's one of you and you come into a space, um, you're treated like you're tokenized. And, and it's through microaggressions that often people don't realize that they're doing because they don't have that lived experience. So you're in a room full of people who are not on like not white people, um, who might say, have an off, make an off comment, you know, remark or whatever, sorry. I live in Toronto, um, um, who might say something that is uh, a microaggression. And they think they're just making an, an offhanded comment when really it's something that cuts deep. Those little things that you say cut us really deep because we get them over and over again. Mm -hmm. What is one thing to a white, one white person is many to a BIPOC person. And so when I think about having um, one one BIPOC person in a play or in a in a situation, it 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 scares me because I know that somebody's not um, going to be there for them, and so I've you know and and even in rooms where there are I've, I you know I've been in a show where there were uh, there were a fair amount of BIPOC artists in the show, but there were also white people in the show, and there was. Um, you know, we, we set boundaries and rules, but, but things happen. And then who's held accountable when those things happen. So when, when you're saying like, where are the arts leaders and where are the people who are like holding that, like having those spaces, like where are those people that are like keeping people safe and physically when like a scene goes too far or, um, you know, and what, 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 what is, what is a safe space for one person physically is not a safe space for another. So I think that for me, one of the biggest problems is that because white people don't have the lived experience of what it is like to be a racialized person, 
there's a disconnect in how those spaces are safe and are not. The, what they think when they are creating a space that is, they think is safe is often not safe, mm-hmm. which is why I push for consultation. And when I say consultation, I don't mean like, let's have a conversation on a phone or let's have a meeting. Like you need to have a person in there. If you are telling any part of an Indigenous story, you need to have more than one Indigenous person in that room because you need to be held accountable for holding that space, holding that ceremony, holding that person so that they're not being tokenized, you know, and, and we need to think about how those spaces are being held and who's responsible for bringing in that funding, who's responsible for ensuring that that's happening because I've heard too many stories and have been a part of too many stories where, um, violence has happened or microaggressions have happened or or whatnot and then and then that person we are all we're holding it we're carrying it in our bodies and then we have to go and do a show yeah and with regards to design teams has there been any instances or where do you feel like the sector is moving in terms of having enough indigenous designers in the room to hold that spaces? And can you maybe give an example or contextualize the danger of just having one indigenous designer or like creator forbid, no indigenous designers? I think it's, I think it's the same thing. I think it runs along the similar lines of that person is still also not being safe because if you've got an indigenous designer, I'm sure that's often there's, if there's a white director, the dismissal of that of that of their of their choices, um, because there's no understanding of where those choices are what those choices are rooted in. Mm. That that often those choices are rooted in in a deep indigenous way, and so like a dismissal of something is can happen. I mean, I I, I luckily for the most part, I've I've had some pretty. Um, good experiences in terms in in some ways but I've definitely been a part of things where I'm like ah this is uncomfortable I'm not comfortable with this I'm (laughs) uncomfortable I'm uncomfortable (laughs) and uh and 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 in my early part of my career I didn't feel comfortable speaking up about these things um but in, in the last little bit I'm now I'm like I'm uncomfortable can we not do this yeah you know, Can and I um, just interject to just get Sam, uh, what are your thoughts around this in terms of as a designer, have you ever been the only Indigenous designer in a room? What are you seeing in the sector that alarms you or that you think needs more attention? Um, I would say for most of my career, I have been the only Indigenous designer wow. in the room, uh, which is definitely very... Uh, interesting. (laughs) Um, I I would say for the most part, I think because the directors I've worked with, like with Kim, with Jenny Lozen, with Kevin Loring, uh, and briefly I I was brought onto a project by Fountain Johnson. Um, I think because I had those directors to to make space for me and hold space for me, uh, where, you know, I, again, like I wasn't the only Indigenous person on the whole team, which I think very much um, had a positive impact on me. I've certainly had moments where I've had to talk to non-Indigenous artistic leadership, uh, wherein I had to kind of, you know, after conversations with the directors, we'd reached a certain agreement, like, okay, great, this is the this is direction we're going, these are the choices we've made, it all makes sense. 
and then I had to go to artistic leadership and and justify those choices mm. and, and and I don't think it was necessarily coming from a place of uh of negativity or anything like that but it more of like a a desire for understanding but it still felt very weird for me because the choices we made were coming from a ceremony or you know uh, revolving around regalia or things like that and it it was just very weird experience for me to have to sit there and you know uh justify everything so so i've had ex- like again i i would i would say you know it, it's very interesting to be the only indigenous person and i truly hope um that you know that changes over time um and with regards to as a costume designer you're leading design you're you know mm-hmm. uh, managing a team of people executing all of the like uh, making work uh, how often do you run into companies that have indigenous like makers and seamstresses that can not just uh, do the work but help the work become exceptional? Is there a, a gap in knowledge there that you're finding you in, uh, encounter a lot? Um, I was thinking about this um, back a, a few months ago. I was realizing that in three years of of working, I only this year in 2020. Uh, have encountered a wardrobe that had people of color, people of color, uh, BIPOC people, like let alone indigenous people. Um, and and this year I was able to work with a company that had both an indigenous person and a BIPOC person in their wardrobe, which again, like I didn't know that I had all that tension going into right. those spaces because until I had that experience because I just had this enormous amount of relief that okay I can I have a safe place to give this to I don't have to and I still kind of you know there were still uh non-indigenous people there so I still kind of did a bit of a spiel and being like okay you know in in our culture we have to put good thoughts into like every single stitch and and we have a different like this isn't a job you're like you're making these important pieces and and to just have that level of understanding all ready to go like this it isn't changed. a bitch's stitch. This is not yeah. a bitch's stitch. That is not okay when you're building regalia. <laughs> and exactly. I don't the labor you have to do, the education, Sam, yeah. you have to do is, I can only imagine, immense. Hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah, yo-yo. I'm just thinking, like, I'm, and I'm, like, wondering about, like, the lack of Indigenous designers and, like, like the the handful of, of, um, of designers that we have who are, incredible um but like i guess i'm just wondering about like institutions that um teach these elements of design and like what outreach they're doing to like communities that for youth that might be interested in this sort of thing that some youth don't have the same privileges and accesses um that urban youth do and so like where like who's responsible for that? You know what I mean? Like organizations are because this is relational. And if you don't have community engagement, you're not being anti-racist. That's my belief. 100%. Because even in Thunder Bay, like my reserve is like in Thunder Bay. It's basic. It's the same thing, but we're like just right next to it. But like, I, we don't know, like when I was growing up outside of that area, I knew nothing about what was offered or what was available. Like growing up, didn't think that, uh, you know, 
leave like going to a school for something that I love to do was an option like I didn't know that until I was in my 20s so and that's in Thunder Bay that's not like that's just that one area like I'm thinking like even further north like when if like what how much do people you know how much are they are are youth aware of options that are available for for them and and why aren't people doing more to engage with them are you saying yeah. there's a gap when karen's <laughs> daughter who comes in to be like come to the cabaret like when karen's <laughs> child is not being indigenously competent are you are you trying to tell me there's a gap here in Just the a system here? i don't Just know a yo-yo emily what do you got on this <laughs> well, i was gonna say that aside from the like i mean i don't have empirical evidence that there is a lack of outreach but i would put a very strong bet on <laughs> on that um but also the process applying for theater school i would argue is super colonial because usually what ends up happening at least when you're going to like a conservatory style program for design um is you i mean first you need a portfolio which implies that you have been able to make a portfolio. So hopefully there's community theater where you are, or maybe semi-professional theaters that will let you uh, tried untested designer deal with their tiny budgets and make them something. But like, and that's assuming they're not racist. Yeah. Right. So like assuming you can even get that experience, uh, which is much more unlikely if you're in a super tiny town and you also are dealing with colonial attitudes and racism, but then you're usually sent to play to design, which often is something classic, like classic, you know, so What's you might have, play? so, you know, you, you might have like, no. like a piece of Shakespeare or, you know, Moliere or, you know, check you off. Might, Check off. Um, hey, what about UNESCO. sisters? Something sisters doing Three a thing. Sisters. Three sisters. Three sisters. Wow. Stolen from us. I think uh, I was in a rehearsal <laughs> skirt and I did that and I bustled on. Did to you do that at BFA? Yeah, I, we did that at the BFA. Yeah. But anyway, so then you have to design a play that you might not be interested in or might not speak to you or you might not have had the like. Ed, the formal education to be able to pick it apart in the way that theater school wants you to pick it apart. So like, even by the time you get to an interview, I'd say the odds are very stacked against um, non-white students. And, and that is institutional racism. Michelle. Oh, for sure. Well, I just like sort of expanding on that. Um, I think that whenever I talk about anything in this realm, it comes back to power imbalance, right? And like, there's nothing the biggest issue and it's not like it extends to issues around BIPOC representation, but it also is every single person in this industry. The reason it is problematic is because the power imbalances are huge, even when it's a small company that has no money and they just want to do a show and the producers themselves probably don't feel like they have a lot of power. They are inherently the ones with the money hiring from a pool of precarious workers who do not have a salary job. Um, and because of that, the fear of uh, blacklisting or of being uh, considered difficult or of not doing a good enough job uh, is pervasive to the point that it makes people very, very, um, it, it's very, very hard in mental health. So when a young person is coming up 
So I didn't, I, I didn't go to design school. I went to the BFA, the same one that Kim did. And I remember seeing her when she was in the shows, but she didn't know me because I was just like, <laughs> I'm it's okay. I just going to bug you about it forever. going to school. Lord. I thought she was so cool. I thought she was so cool. Um, but I did, I did acting school, but you know, I had the benefit of being a musician as a kid and I very much fell into it because I came up around like I graduated in 2011. So right around then it was when like people were just like, Ooh, hire a woman sound designer. So I think I for sure got some like legs up in terms of, um, affirmative action there, which I was like, absolutely. I will take it. Um, and so I said yes to things I was not qualified for. I struggled through it. I made my way. And it was terrifying and I cried a lot, but I, but that's how I got up there. And because I was a, you know, a, an educated white girl who knew how to write an email because my dad's a lawyer, like I was able to do that. And I was able to go into a contract negotiation and I knew how to talk about money because I've been, my parents had talked to me about money. So I knew how to, yeah. I still did my paying my dues thing a little bit, but I was able to say like, no, you can't do that to me. So, but when I say like, if, if for me it was that hard, like, you're not giving anyone a chance who doesn't have um, yeah. uh, language around talking about money or advocating for themselves or how to write a professional sounding email, mm-hmm. because those are the things that get you the job. Really. It's not the design portfolio. It's how you write an email. It's how you make a phone call. It's who you know to call. Yeah, absolutely. And so um, there has to be like, uh, there has to be a deep, deep understanding by the folks who are hiring that they can't, you can't play hardball with people. Like, I don't care. And honestly, the other thing, sorry, just, just to go, um, you know, mentorship and, and, and training and assistance is another big part of, of helping people get up and get those skills. And um, when I've worked with, with Kim, you know, we did have the benefit of having, working on a project that had quite a bit of funding. And so because of that, there were a lot, a lot of different people that could come in and work on these design teams. Um, and when I talked to white people, when I talk to settlers about like, how do I do this? How do I make indigenous art? And like, it's just more expensive. Like it's, it's not actually that like weird and crazy and challenging for you. You'll understand how to do it. You just have to spend more money. And that's, I think the hard pill to swallow sometimes. And education, you know, Michelle, like you did your due diligence in terms of understanding indigenous diaspora and ontology um, Michelle, uh, Emily, I want to throw it to you quickly, and then we're going to come to Sam to talk about your experience on Kamloopa. Uh, Emily, in the sector right now, what is making you uncomfortable? What are the challenges when you first started coming into working with Indigenous work, like in the embodiment of being vulnerable, because working internationally requires a significant amount of vulnerability and trust. What was it like for you coming into that piece that was um, immensely Indigenous and matriarchal? Yeah, I mean, well, the first thing was, like, when I read it, I, like, fell in love with it, so there was no way any amount of, like, fear or, or other emotions or the fact that I was across the country would uh, keep me from it, but uh, I think the concept as, uh, particularly as a, a video designer, that's always really daunting, is um, creating visuals that uh, I feel comfortable as a, as a white person uh, presenting for an indigenous story. Because obviously uh, that's a really easy place to fall into the like cultural appropriation trap yep. because you, I can't make visuals that are 
imitating like a Coast Salish style. You know, that's not something I would feel comfortable with if someone was like, hey, can you make this picture? But mm. I mean, can you do an Anishinaabe? Nope. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so uh, that's always really daunting, but it's, it's, it's also an opportunity to figure out like how you connect to the piece and how you can bring like my, um, my heritage and feelings and knowledge, um, which I think we did really well with Kenloop because we played a lot with shadows and, and, and more realistic depictions of animals. Um, and, but it was also like a great opportunity on Skyborne where we had much more money to be able to be like visual artists, yeah. sculptural artists, yeah, carvers, visual team. Yeah. Uh, so that's a great way because then you can have that exchange and you can, you have someone who is able to create the art in the style because it's, it's their style, they're embodying it. It's their, their culture and lineage and then I can work with that and animate it and, and bring it into the theatrical realm and there can be a give and take there. But like the concept of creating visuals that like don't, um, don't belong to me in any way and I would not want to take them, like that's, that's like a scary, mm-hmm. a scary thing to, to like when you're approaching video design as, as a white person. And I think one thing, because I want people to leave this with like practical applications and strategies for ensuring they're not being appropriative, is that Emily um, took the initiative. I'm not sure if this is a standard for every art institution, but when I uh, when we talked briefly and I didn't know your work, I think we said like, could you send me something or, or understand where you're at? And you had sent me this beautiful, basically like pitch package um, and like folder of like ideas and visuals that I could get a sense from you what your like cultural competency and innovation and courage was. Did you want to speak to a little bit about that, about that practice and how you could offer that to other designers when they're wanting to work with Indigenous uh, leaders? Yeah, um, so this is this is actually just part of my design process in general. Like, it's how I approach all my designs. I think that it, it part of why it drives so well here is because particularly, Kim, you're like a very, like, you work well with visuals and we can and we can really talk about it, but it some like d- director direct to director. It depends on how effective sending a, a group of abstract images is. Um, but what I, I do saw in- was like hire her, give her all the money. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so basically, what I what I do is I'll read the the text like a whole bunch of times, and then I'll write things. I won't draw anything, and then after that, I'll just start like googling images that sort of like speak on a like internal intrinsic level to like feelings about the play so it's not like moments or or anything like that there's no text and it'll go sort of down those like really great google rabbit holes where you're like shadows caustics empty wine bottle glass sculpture like and you just like follow down and whenever anything is like that then I save it into my folder of like hundreds of pictures. And then afterwards I sort of curate it. Um, and when you're looking at them afterwards, you can sort of start to see themes. So like, uh, you know, like nature versus um, the city, like that 
is a very loose theme. But like when you're looking at your image that you saved and all of a sudden you have like a bunch of concrete pillars with plants growing out of them, you're like, oh, that's like a tension that spoke to me when I read it. So then I put those all together and I send them off. And then I think that's always a good launching point in terms of discussion because then you're not discussing moments, you're discussing like feelings. Yeah, and what was really works with that is that you're not just being like, well, if I'm not doing indigenous stuff, what am I doing? And putting more labor on the director and putting more labor on the other designers, you showed up with offers, with fullness, with the ability to say, let's navigate these cultural cross lines and these uh, horizons and then just say, you know what, I'm feeling this or I'm feeling that. To me, that's what it means for an artist and is a designer and I need to work with people who show up with their hands full, with their pockets full, with all all of their bags and spirits full, making offer after offer after offer so that I'm not having to be prescriptive around their design work. Um, Sam, I want to come back to you. Thank you so much, Emily and Michelle, for that. Uh, around the work on Kamloopa and how working with an Indigenous and non-Indigenous team, working, uh, and this is something that I want to be specific and talk about, is internation work about being Indigenous but designing for nations outside of your own. And so with mm. Kamloopa, those performers were silk. Uh, and I think, Yolanda, for that production, we ended up deciding that Indian friend number one was because you had said I've never played uh, Anishinaabe woman before and yeah. I didn't prescribe it in that because she was a shifter and so Sam what was that like for you and also I just want to like introduce Sam and her work with Kamloopa because I think so much happened with that production and I'll say it I think I was pissed about the lack of acknowledgement and the lack of work in detail that Sam did on that show with one, not getting a Jesse nomination and two, people not understanding the specifics and the rigorous work she did around creating new indigenous regalia, about creating 30 plus costumes with tunican lid jingle dresses, <laughs> with creating a polka hottie costume that Yolanda just loved being in, that she created this world of design of art that I, I still like satiate around the fact that every time she would show me a piece, I would either be laughing uncontrollably or immensely and deeply in love with her. Um, but it looks like we might've just lost Sam. <laughs> she's too much her, praise. Too much love. But maybe Yo-Yo, while we're holding this space, cause I do want to give Sammy Q the attention and respect that I don't believe she received on her work with Ken Lupa, and yeah. even with thanks for giving the fucking work she did for these shows and really the lack of people understanding her, the extent of her execution with regards to the detail and meticulousness courage and competency what was it like for you wearing the polka hottie costume wearing the captain fraser costume <laughs> wearing the raven costume and that's just yeah. one character in that show yeah it was um there was something I had never, uh, I've never experienced. Uh, uh, Sorry, Sam, I, we're still speaking your praises. And now mm -hmm. Yolanda's going to talk about how nourishing it was to embody all of your amazingness. I've just been saying, I just want you to have the respect and time that these nations deserve to understand the uh, incredible power you have as a costume designer. So yo-yo. Yeah, there was something really, and power, power was the best, I think there was something really powerful about wearing regalia created for you. Um, and even if it was like, 
the Pocahontas costume, which I, like to me, like when I looked at all the costumes, like they were all regalia. It didn't matter if it was like a pair of jeans or like um, like that the Oka Oka outfit, like. You know, like these, uh, to me, it, it all felt sort of in that realm because the entire story was a ceremony. Therefore, everything we wore was part of that ceremony. Therefore, everything we wore was regalia. And so whenever, before the, every show, and I, whenever I would smudge, I smudged the entire, all of the costumes. Um, there was something so incredibly powerful about that. I... I was so nervous about wearing a beaded g-string on stage um but that whole costume and every costume i wore whatever discomfort i i felt was gone um the uh, i became a raven when i put on the raven like like it, it it fed my performance in, in so deeply that I can't, I, there are barely, there aren't really words for it. Like the minute I put those feathers on, like it was mm. just like, I could feel it. The minute I put the Pocahontas costume on, I was like, this is the best thing I'm ever gonna wear on stage ever. As a director coming in when Sam was like, it's time. And I was like, <laughs> the Pocahontas costume is here. And I came in and you know, you're like, I think you cried and I almost cried because we actually talked about how hot and sexy and beautiful you were. And I was getting update by updates on the G-string and Sam would be like, okay, so this is the beadwork we've worked on today. <laughs> and this is the beadwork. And it's like, it was immensely, uh, you did it with dignity and just a sexiness and a courage and Yolanda. Um, also, you, we had um, two options for that piece, which again, as indigenous women, maybe Sam, I'll throw it to you around your process around making sure that Yolanda had that experience of uh, coming into a, uh, the costume room and not knowing she had to go in and have a battle around how inappropriate or how the work hadn't been done. So Sam, take it away. How did you do Kamloopa? Um. Oh my gosh, it was a very important show in my career. Having only been designing for about three years, and I think by the time I did Kamloopa, I was only uh, a year into my career. Um, and it was, it was the biggest project, I would say, for me to take on, just because there were so many little details in, in each and every costume that I wanted to, to be aware of uh, and, and so much history to, to bring in. And so I think, you know, uh, I love what Yolanda was talking about with having, you know, the, the costume being regalia and, and the, the show being ceremony because that informs a lot of how I work and how I view the costumes that I make. Um, and it, it's definitely an interesting position to be in, you know, when we're talking about modern versus historical and how I, you know, when we're handling traditional wear and traditional uh, uh, garb, you know, especially as someone who may not have uh, uh, associations with that particular nation, uh, there's a lot uh, I'm always a little bit worried and I always try to acknowledge, you know, that even though I'm the indigenous designer here, that doesn't mean that I know, you know, what's okay for 
you know, Coast Salish, or I know what's okay for Maliseet or, you know, uh, Haudenosaunee. Like, there are so many little nuances in every culture that I may miss. I will do my absolute best to presence as much as I can in the work. Um, and it, I kind of tried to do my best to honor the ancestors because a lot of the research I'm doing revolves looking around looking into those things. Mm -hmm. um, and another big, we were talking about it kind of at the beginning, um, that the idea of consent is another really important work. And I'm not entirely sure, again, because I'm still relatively new uh, to the industry, but I ask I do my best to ask a lot of questions in the fitting room uh, and leading into things because I feel like I don't have full ownership of the character that I'm doing. I have my analysis um, and I have my research and, and all this stuff that feeds into it, but Yolanda is going to be the only one who knows if this is exactly, you know, right for this character. So I try to incorporate uh, actor-director feedback so that I'm, I acknowledge that, you know, I, I've kind of got a creative vision for what's happening here, but I can't claim in, like, individual ownership over that. This needs to be circular. It needs to be, um, you know, a give and take. And, like, my mom's people come from potlatch tradition where, you know, we have to share our wealth and we have to share... Uh, everything in order to make decisions uh, that affect all of us and and so I I take that very seriously in my work because I don't feel comfortable if Yolanda is not comfortable mm -hmm. or you know going into that so that that's kind of you know where I come in with a lot of things. Uh, Kamlupa also challenged me I would say um, because we were dealing with so much uh, <laughs> What I mean? stereotypical. <laughs> There's like Simon Fraser, Pocahontas, like like, Pocahontas, like the Oka, like the dad the, the, the medicine woman. <laughs> the medicine yeah. woman. Well, should the feather go in her face here or should it go on this <laughs> side? Is it you? Like, you came in one time. I was like, is she have enough like white lady hippie jewelry on? I was like, I don't know, Sam, Yolanda. What do you think? <laughs> there was so much you did, Sam. Yeah. And, and sort of to kind of, like, what you said earlier, you brought up um, something really important, Kim, like, when we were talking about safety, um, the option was, so the back of my costume was a thong, and, like, in the front, there was, like, a, a buckskin piece, and so I had the option, if I wasn't comfortable, to put a flap on it, so there was another, like, part that was created for me in case I for some reason that day didn't want to show my butt. Um, but uh, and so there was something about just knowing that that was there. I don't think I ever used it. No, you didn't, but, but the flap was there. The flap was there as an option. And so it didn't like it, it, it which was like a safety net for me. Mm -hmm. And I think too that, and I'll go back to the front of that skirt because one, I think this is a really good micro example of internation indigenous work to Anishinaabe's an interior Salish creating a collaborative practice and diligence. So that's an example of how indigenous internation works. But also then we're going to add in the white portion. Emily had to like design and put, uh, and Daniela had to put on lighting and projection when she revealed the Pocahontas. And I remember there was also, and Sam or Yolanda and Emily, please interrupt me, was around, we had to have an image painted on that looked like an angry, angry vagina. vagina. Yeah. It's my favorite. 
Emily was like, I can't see it or I don't know if I can light it. And so Emily in the costume department had to work. And then Yolanda also had to feel comfortable. And so to me, that was a really great example of uh, <laughs> Yolanda, of intonation <laughs> collaboration around lighting an angry vagina image <laughs> on a Pocahontas costume. And if you don't have the capacity to do that, I don't know if you should be creating in theater. <laughs> the story of two suns rising. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like in in general theater, I would argue is all collaboration. So you know, I think that maybe the like biggest moment was like figuring out how to match the level of the the regalia, the the animal regalia. Right. At the end and like how because Sam brought such as like huge emotional beat and then it's like how do we bring the rest of the show <laughs> with it, right? Because you know seeing seeing the those cloaks go on and, and, and like the full raven. Also, yo, when you say that like you're like as soon as I put the raven on, I felt like the raven. Like that was very visible. It'd be like the raven has arrived. I mean, the Raven was always sort of there whenever, whenever there was any laughing in particular. But um. Um, And Sam, just before we move on to the next area, which is going to be the advice and the like how we can do these collaborations so we can laugh and have joy around it and then not be stressful and we're not afraid of fear. Did you want to talk a little bit about your practice around creating that regalia at the end, about creating those silk capes, about the work that you did around what that was? Because I just remember when you showed me what they were and you said I did, I was just like, astounded and so appreciative again sam coming with offers sam coming with her research done for intonation collaboration so um i think people would love to hear and especially young indigenous designers around when an artistic leader is asking you to evolve culture to create regalia what was your process like uh, to do that um it was very again there's always a bit of an interesting it's an interesting process for me when I'm given a specific nation to represent. Um, and so for me, it always starts with, with grounding it in that culture, making sure I'm doing the appropriate research uh, into materials, into, uh, you know, into silhouettes and things like that. Uh, so when I was asked to create, you know, a, a, a piece of regalia at the end to symbolize you know, these characters arriving in the, in their spirit form and, and meeting this, you know, becoming one with the spirits that are guiding them. Uh, that was just such an important moment that I, I really wanted to, I wanted to make sure that the ancestors of the characters were being seen, uh, in, in those silhouettes, in those materials, like we used fur, we used um, something that looked like cedar, uh, cedar fringe, and, and we, you know, all for Nakayo, uh, we used an actual coyote pelt. Uh, and so for, for those types of things, I, I tried to make those choices so, so that those ancestral uh, uh, qualities are part of that piece but also you know bringing it to now bringing it to today with materials that we have today with you know um you know trying to make sure that those things 
that we're we're honoring them. We're also uh, making sure that they fit in with the world that we've created uh, and things like that. So so that's kind of like my process going into it because it was just such an important um moment that I just really wanted to make sure that those ancestors were present in that moment because that's you know what we do ceremony for that's what we we do our art for to to acknowledge our history to acknowledge those ancestors and so I really needed that to be a part of the story that we were telling um so yeah. And beautifully executed. I remember when they came out and we saw that final image of them, the reflection of transformation. You know, one of my favorite images that Tim Matheson took was of mm -hmm. Samantha, uh, Sam Brown holding her heart with the headband, yeah. with the cape, with the cedar material that what you're saying, that shape and silhouette. I just it's such a moving photo to me and I can't extend my my gratefulness uh, that I was able to work with you and, 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 and make space for you to explore and innovate in costume. So uh, we're going to move to the next portion of this around, you know, what does this actually mean? How, what have our experiences been? The good, the bad, the ugly. Um, Michelle, I'll kick it over to you to talk about your experience as a non-Jesus person uh, working under the tyranny of me. Just joking. <laughs> Yeah, you know, <laughs> I'm not. I don't even know the plural for tyrannical. that. Tyrannical. 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 You guys are lying. That's a white person lie, is it? <laughs> okay, Michelle. Uh, okay, what can I say? I I have lots of things to say, but I, I just um. I guess I'll start with just talking about um, there. There is a learning, right, about how to be in the room. But again, I always come back to it. Seems I, I, I think that we think it's something and that's like really, really hard and scary, and then we realize that's just sort of how you should be as a person. Like when you're in a room and thinking about what you're going to say and like who the other people are. Like it's it's um. So like my. First, I, I did work on my very, very first experience working on an Indigenous-led project was uh, just I did a two-day workshop on um, Lisa Ravensbergen's show, Seventh Fire. So I did have a, a couple days Respect. in there, which was, it's a beautiful show. Um, and I just sort of came on a little bit uh, after it had um, begun its process. And, and, you know, there's just a real learning about what those spaces feel like, what it's like to be in those rooms, how to... Um, the tricky thing is, as a designer, when I'm brought in, is that there's a lot of listening, but there's also a lot of leadership required for me to execute the work. And so um, I feel like over the last sort of year or two, as I've begun to be in these spaces, it's really the thing that I'm learning the most is about when is it about listening and giving space and when is it about action and getting stuff done. And uh, so our work on Skyborn, um, it was good because there was a, there was a workshop in the summer that was a three week thing. And then that was, there was a bunch of time in between that and doing the production. And so when I first stepped into that room, like there's certainly, you know, there's, there's this feeling of like, and, and it, it, I feel like it was echoed a lot over the last few months after the murder of George Floyd, which what we're seeing on the internet is that a lot of white people are very, very scared. Um, uh, and very scared about saying the wrong thing and very nervous and very confused, which is like very, that's like totally real and fine. But there's also a big learning about, being able to just kind of not know and being able to like, be like, it's okay. And if you're being respectful and thoughtful, you can say something stupid accidentally and you can apologize for it, <laughs> or you can make an offer that is not a good offer. And then you can hear actually, sorry, that's not 
that's not appropriate for whatever reason, you can say, okay, sorry. And then that's it. Like it doesn't have to be a big thing that means you're a bad person. But I will say just to intersect that it's also indigenous leaders job to not make it a big deal. You know, we Mm. can't be anti-courageous, shameful based being like, oh, that was so inappropriate. Like that was so ignorant. That was so whatever. I think indigenous leaders and producers have to take more of a responsibility. Like, and I've unfortunately bared witness to being some creators like laugh at their designers. And I was like, Mm. wow, that's really unfortunate that that's how you're responding to their offers are. That's just inappropriate to me. And I don't like working with people that. So I want to make sure indigenous people take responsibility to what you're saying, um, Michelle, that when you do make offers that they're received respectfully. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a great point. And I think that the more trust there is on both sides, then the more um, space there is for those things to happen, right? For a designer to, to feel like, okay, I know what I'm doing enough that I can say this. And I also, that this person will hear it and they'll, they'll either say, that's great. Or they'll say, you know what, that's not appropriate or it's not right for the show um, or whatever. Like, but, but that trust is, is, is important and it takes time and it's like an exercise. It's like a muscle you have to build. It's how to be in those spaces is like a muscle and it's, it's a little more work. It's a little more work and you're tired at the end of the day. And then I think, you know what, that's kind of how we should be when we're with people, when we're working with people on creative projects is no matter who's in the room, we really should be thinking like, one more step before we say something, you know, or really thinking like, who am I interrupting in this space? And what, like that stuff is just normal human stuff. (laughs) And so again, all these lessons, they they should be taken back to every project, every single time, you know, Uh, being aware of where people are at in terms of their own lives. It's like good to do that. (laughs) Um, So, I mean, that's, there's that one thing in terms of just how to be in the space. Um, And then, and then understanding that uh, uh, your job is to get stuff done. It's not just to like sit and listen and be scared. It's to actually execute the work. And that requires bravery and it requires actually making offers. If you, cause I think that if, if, and we've talked about this a lot, Kim, is that if an indigenous leader is saying, I want to hire you, then, then they're giving you, they're asking you to do the job. And then you have to, there has to be some freeing up uh, about uh, the, the fear. There just has to be some sort of allowance of the work to happen. Um, yeah. Can I just interject that my sister and I were talking about this morning about the fact that I find that people who have a lot of fear, who have a lot of shame, are actually um, not at the level they need to be of doing their anti-racist work that they need to be to execute at this level. That it's a reflection of the anti-oppression work that they have to go and do and the internal spiritual um, anti-imperialist work that they have to go and do. And I find that designers who haven't done that work, who come in with, one, the assumption that this is just business as usual, that come into letting fear be their determining factor so they obstruct themselves from from working they actually have to go do the work beforehand to make sure that they can arrive ready to work and that's not my job as a director that's not my job as a producer getting you ready to work and making sure you're prepared is every is everyone's own responsibility and when you're working internationally and collaboratively do not expect the director you know i feel like i do make a lot of offers in the room to take care of p to take care of people, but please don't, you know, misinterpret my generosity and kindness around creating safe spaces as for people to show up and not being prepared. And I, I think I do create deliberate spaces where sometimes we do have to work at a pace, you know, I think for Kamloopa, when I re- looked at the schedule, we did Kamloopa in a 17 day rehearsal 
period minus two days off. So that's like 15 days we did that show. And so for me, those people had to show prepared, ready, having done that anti-racist work to be in the room and ready to make decisions um, at a pace that allowed us to get to the end. Um, Michelle, I want to call this space again for you around what it was like for you running a team of internation and mixed race for the sound design of that, uh, you know, very yeah. deliberate Salish sounding production. Uh, it was really really like nourishing and rewarding and also like I, I think at a certain point I realized what my job was which made everything a bit easier and um what I realized was that because of that particular project um there were a lot of people on the sound team but not most of them didn't have a, the capacity or the availability to be around all the time so I was sort of the one holding it um gathering things making like doing a lot of logistical work honestly like the thing that I could offer was saying okay we're going to record we need people in this day. Here's the time we're going to go rent the gear. And then me doing that meant that, uh, that wasn't, no one else was expected to do that. And that the folks who we had, we could utilize their time really well. So, um, we had these, uh, three really, really amazing recording sessions with, uh, Chelsea Rose and Caitlin Yacht and Renai Morisot and, and Russell. Uh, Russell Wallace, um, where we went into a room and, you know, and my, so what I, Part of my thought process was like, I want to find a space that's really beautiful and really clean and really like nice and comfortable. And we got people together and we did a lot of, they did a bunch of improving and Russell spent a whole couple hours doing different stuff on the drum. And so then I, because uh, appropriation with music is, you know, it's really, you cannot avoid it. And if you're not playing European music, every single thing you're playing is appropriated from black culture, from Latin culture. Uh, from, you know, it's, it's, it's just, it's kind of what it is and, and understanding and reconciling what that means as a composer is, is its own challenge. Yeah. Um, one of the best things about that project was that um, I wasn't actually asked to generate too much music. I had to create a lot of sound, um, but we, by gathering all these indigenous artists together to play, uh, I just had this like huge, like tons of stuff to play with. And then I, as the sort of person bringing it together, felt really comfortable throwing things in because um, there was one traditional Musqueam song, paddle song that um, Christy Lee brought in, Christy Lee Charles, right? Yep. Um, which she asked permission from the Musqueam women to share that with us. So that's and consent and acknowledgement. So that's consent. The and it was also very specific that we could use that, that song we could not take and manipulate and mess around with. Uh, but there was a really interesting process in her as a Musqueam woman teaching the other Indigenous singers this song, which they didn't know. Um, and she did a lot of educating around that. Uh, and the other music that we created was uh, not, didn't, you know, this was all newly generated, so there was a lot more freedom in creating it. And I think that one other thing about around consent that I think is really interesting is that sometimes, like in that situation, you will get positive consent. More often than not, you'll either get like don't do this or you'll get a couple people who say yes it's okay and then you have to kind of make a decision about yep. what you feel and you're never gonna get some person some magical person saying yes you can do this yes it's okay like because that's impossible unless every single indigenous person from that whole nation tells you it's okay and so you have to we all have to make our own judgment calls and and decide with the team with the people whether or not something feels appropriate and comfortable in that situation. 
And I just, I'll go to you, Yo, in just one sec. I want to honor again the detailed work that you did, Michelle, with regards to not only holding space for Indigenous women to get together and create songs and create music and honor uh, the traditional paddle song, but also in the sense that it wasn't just like, I said, I need Cosmo music, I need cosmic space music. You weren't like, let me go to Soundfile and just pull it. The, the thought you went around to get Russell, start, you know, creating a safe space for Russell to use rattles and shells and his drum, I would say, and correct me if I'm wrong, the like majority, like 95% of all of that cosmic sound design was rooted, culturally grounded in indigenous instruments. And did you want to speak about that little process too, about how important that was? Because when you hear it, it's not good enough as juries, as audience members to just think, oh, they just pulled this music, but to do the work to understand that Michelle had the integrity, thought, and respect to create soundscapes you know, that we played a little bit with on Kamloopa. I want to mention Chris Dirksen about you guys singing in the costume room, about creating the space, but how you're rooting the culture within Indigenous-centric musicians, leaders, and instruments to presence, like what Sam McHugh was saying, our ancestors and their cultural heritage. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's really it. And, um, you know, Russell's such a, a brilliant human and he has so many things to offer as a person and as an artist um, and making that space. And so I, I knew we were lucky or we were not lucky. This is how it should be. We knew we were going into a situation with a show that had scoring for the entire 75 minutes of the show. So I then said, I need to be in the room every single day because otherwise I cannot do my job. And I need to have all of this content ready so that I'm not running around after rehearsal trying to get this recorded and missing days in rehearsal. So we, I had that time to be able to say um, what we need because that show was very, very rich in terms of the layers of, of audio that it needed. It just was present all of the time. Um, and yes, that was so, and it was, it, it was, yes, that's what I was thinking and also but also we we're just like hey Russell what can you do like show us some stuff play around and again it comes back to money because we had money to go and rent those spaces rent that gear pay Russell pay me like that's what it requires <laughs> and so it it's that's what it that's how it should be in a situation like this that's how it needs to be but it's not I just, I always come back to this because it seems like this like floofy like we just talk about these ideas but no just you just got to pay for it and you have to pay for people to be there and be comfortable and relax because Russell, he came in for, oh, we had like him for like three hours and he just brought all his stuff and it's very relaxed and we had snacks and, and we could um, chat and, and sort of jam and say, oh, can you do this? So what's another thing? And he brought, he also brought like rattles that were not um, indigenous to, to hear. I think he brought some South American stuff. He brought some just tools and stuff he could play with from all around. So yeah, it's all, yeah, with music, when you get people in and they're comfortable and they're relaxed, you can just create in space. So and Yolanda, I'll come to you. Um, Chris really had an incredible um, creative practice around playing her cello in the morning of Kamloopa and the three of you singing and jiving and everyone was singing. Do you want to speak about that process for you, about how that grounded your ability? Because Kamloopa also had a significant amount of singing Will it be uh, the log driver's waltz or the matriarch? So what was that like for you? It was beautiful. I um, had never had the opportunity to work like that. And, and 
because I was a, like relatively new in my, with my drum because I was drumming um, there. I, I had never been given space to sort of explore what my voice would sound like with my drum uh, with other in, in a full space. And so there was something really nice about us just sitting there and jamming with Chris Dirksen. Like uh, it, it's like, I, I, I think about that experience often actually, because it was very, um, you don't get that opportunity often to just sort of improv and, and, and on the fly. And we created some beautiful soundscapes um, that I, 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 and and they weren't all used, but the fact that they were created, even just the fact that they existed, was was beautiful. Um, and yeah, like I squished into that little dressing room or the the costume room to like record was like something else. But it was um, it was really moving and really freeing. It, there was something really freeing about it. I also wanted to presence um, the Shwetnik women who came in to teach us the honor song, uh, and that was incredibly um, important and deeply rooted in the respect that we had for the territory. Um, and that, you know, I performed that song every night while Caitlin and Sam did the, the, the dance moves. And um, I remember how diligent we were about like making sure that it was correct and that we, you know, that we were listening to it over and over again. Um, and every night I felt so honored to be able to sing a song uh, that's not from my nation, but on on a territory, the, the territory that that song originated on. And what was the most beautiful thing was watching when people stood up or people sang along with it um, so that there was this like, uh, they felt seen or heard uh, by us just presenting the song and that they would stand up or they would sing along. And it was just so, so incredibly moving. Thank you, Yolanda. Emily, do you want to talk about advice? Because I feel like we, um, you know, clicked really quickly, but also one of the things I appreciate out of you, and, and I, will, I will say, I think the Kamloopa crew set me up for uh, problems because of how diligent, quick, hardworking, rigorous, and competent they were, because I honestly can't believe what we did in 15 days. And I expect that level of rigor in many situations while still rooted uh, with integrity and respect. And I've seen it done. And that's why I can be demanding when it comes to execution, because I've seen it happen. And so Emily, what was it like for you coming across? I remember you mentioned to me once too, you were like, I excused processes before, before Kamloopa. Do you want to speak? And, and, and I want to just hear and make space for you around what you think um people can learn from and what's uh, served you well in these processes yeah for sure like there was i mean i would say vice versa kamlupa has also set other theater experiences up uh for failure for me as well um <laughs> uh because there's a lot of things that we did in kamlupa that made it a very human experience and a very enjoyable experience and like yeah it was a lot but when your working environment is um, so warm and welcoming and thoughtful and nourishing, like the prospect of working long days or working long hours, or even the like ever-present smoke draining into our lungs oh, from, yeah, the, the, from fires. the fires. Um, For this, the uh, air quality was hazardous. <laughs> it's like, oh, is there a theater through there? No. 
only only smoke um but like none none of that really felt draining or daunting in the way that a lot of theatrical practices do when you're you're working in less ideal environments um also i'd like to say like in terms of fear like fear uh is a paralytic right so as soon as you're afraid you're not going to be moving you're not going to be going forwards um so it's important to like acknowledge that fear and then like move through it uh because like shoving it aside doesn't work either because then you're just repressing things which is like perhaps worse um so sitting in the discomfort sitting in the fear figuring out why you're afraid what is scaring you and then and then moving past it is super important like there's definitely like on Kamloopa which was like a gorgeous environment there's still scary things like for me as a white person being invited to learn how to powwow dance oh yeah that is a scary thing uh <laughs> I said, all the designers are invited to do everything all the time. And like they did. So we dancing, we learned the Schlepnik song and everyone in, was, and that's the thing with that production. Everybody showed up to work every day and participate to be vulnerable. Everybody was so vulnerable and so generously trusting. Respectful. Yeah. So, you know, it, it also, when you, when you engage in experiences like that, you gain, a deeper understand. Okay. Oh, sorry? You're frozen a bit. We're not frozen, though. So I'm going to keep talking. Um, when you engage in, in practices like, uh, like a powwow workshop or um, learning the songs that the actors are learning, or even, yo, on one of our first days, you brought your drum and we all sang together and like I'm the sort of person who gets mild anxiety when they're like all right now Emily introduce yourself with your name so like the concept <laughs> of like singing a song from from uh, an indigenous person and I don't really sing and like all all of that is is terrifying but when you work through the fear, you gain a greater understanding of the piece and the people you're working with and the culture and the processes. And that lets you dig deeper into your work. Yeah. Um, I feel so lost now that Kim's gone. I'm like, just my, my guiding force. Oh, she's, she's oh, she is. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so... I was just saying, Kim, how when you work through fear, uh, you gain a deeper understanding of, of what you're, of what you're doing. Um, so, like in terms of like practices, like just listening a lot, coming with offers, um, doing your own research on your own time, like don't don't take up the space. Like make a mental note of something you don't understand, and then go use the old googs, like. Yeah, everyone carries uh, a tiny computer with them at all times. Use it. Um, yeah, old googs. <laughs> yeah, old googs. We're very close. <laughs> um, yeah, and uh, oh, I swear I had a thought. Um, 
I do want to pick your brain, Emily, around yeah. um, the emphasis on relationship and how I know a lot of people say Indigenous theater is relational and what that actually means for you and in practice. And like you, you can speak truth to me all the time. What that looks like as a director, as a writer, as producers, making space and what that relationship looks like for you and I and between other designers and how that's integral that designers don't just come in for an hour and leave. They're part of circles. You know, it's important for me. You know, we have many different modalities that, but maybe to share people with tools, what's worked with you and what we kind of do on the shows that we work together on. Yeah. I mean, like I've said this many times to anyone who will listen to me, um, sharing and, and creating theater, not in a bubble is super important. Uh, as soon as you're precious about your work, as soon as you, uh, again, as soon as you have that fear that like maybe people aren't going to like it, maybe people aren't going to get it, it's not done, I don't want to show it, blah, 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 blah. Um, you're not moving forwards, you're not moving at the speed that you could be, and you're not going to be creating this, this, these intersections in your work that you will if you open it up. So Google Drive is a really big one so that everyone can see what everyone is doing, you know, like being able to go on the, the, the sound folder and see like what Michelle has created will inform what I'm doing with video, you know, even if that's not a bit that we're going to get to in the rehearsal space for the next five days, right? Like yep. being able to have these communications and, and being able to see what other people are doing is super important. Um, Kim, we always have like a design WhatsApp, which is great because it allows like rapid fire thoughts um, versus like and writing emails are so formal. And because um, we're, we're all in different time zones and you will work with that a lot when you're working internationally from yes. artists, as Yolanda had said, because there's not a lot of indigenous designers yet. And we're working across Turtle Island. Having WhatsApp allows people to respond when they're ready to. And I never demand that people respond as soon as I WhatsApp them. Yeah. Um, this is also like years out in advance now, which is important to me anyways, but continue. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, just being, having like group conversations with the whole design team. So you don't, one, I think that Kim, you brought this up, I think on Kim Lupa or, or afterwards, you were saying like, if I, if we finish a rehearsal day at five and then I have to have a meeting with like every designer for an hour afterwards, your labor is like, so one it's not as productive because you're either having to have similar conversations or it's on you which is like a very colonial way of making theater to make the interconnections between the different design practices which shouldn't happen it should be the designers and the director all working together creating those bridges creating those those neurons those thought pathways um because the the work will be stronger and it takes labor off of everyone because it's it's shared um and making art with people you don't trust or you don't know it is never as good an experience as when you all are actually working together and and speaking the the same sort of visual language as it were or auditory language thanks. design language thanks emily um we'll go to michelle and then sam yeah, I just want to say that, like, from the other side of that, um, I feel like, Kim, you make it a priority to uh, acknowledge the work of the designers and invite us and include us in the space. And um, that is not a small thing, especially I just can just offer that in the last, you know, uh, four months as theater has been 
not happening. Uh, among the design community, there's been a real feeling, especially as people are like, well, we can just do a Zoom show from our home and design doesn't matter. Um, there's been a real, I think, general cultural that always exists around designers being like, does anyone care what we do? Does anyone appreciate this work that we're putting in? And, and you do, and you do. And it is so incredible to be in spaces where it's really spoken about out loud. And I would say that, you know, probably, you know, sound and costumes are the ones that people, uh, you know, don't think about because they can't, they don't necessarily process what the work that's been putting into them. And so um, that is not a small thing to, to feel like you're, you're valued and to feel like you matter in the space. And again, that makes um, the trust. It means that we're more excited to be there and to be included and have conversations and make those offers between the design disciplines and work together. It just, um, there is, yeah, it's so, and, and a lot of it, it comes from designers or people being underpaid. So they have to do a million jobs at once and then they're not able to be present all the time or whatever. And, and, and it's just becomes very hard. But when we're all invited to be in the space and maybe not necessarily have an equal say in all things, but at least to be there to witness and there to have those conversations is like really big. And I think it really, um, it allows trust, which allows better work. It's one of my favorite things to do because I just firmly believe the collective knowledge is always far greater than the individual is to ask the room, do we like this? Do we believe this? Is any of this working? Because if I don't believe that my designers are in love with it, if I don't believe that the collaborators have ignition and um, agency, I don't know why I would prefer a public, really a patron or a public's first experiences versus a team of people to say, what do we all think about this? And to me, it's my indigenous values to respect designers enough to say, you are equitably as important as the performers. The whole like, shh, the actors on stage is BS. It's colonial, hierarchical, racist bullshit that if a designer is talking to me or two designers are talking, their time, their space, their artistry is worth the respect for the actors on stage to quiet it down for a minute, to let them speak, to be heard. And I am over shushing designers. Mm -hmm. It is one of them. It makes me as an yeah. indigenous woman feel so fucking uncomfortable. I respect and appreciate them and performers that I work with. I don't care if they don't respect the designers. I'm their advocate. I'm their champion. I will help them make sure they have enough time, that they're getting paid the wages that they need to. And that is my responsibility as a director. I don't, I don't accept anymore the mm -hmm. deplorable way directors and this sector has treated designers. It's inexcusable and I refuse it. It's over, not in any room or space that I create. That is the heat I bring to my love for designers. Yes. Sam, I want to make space for you as we're kind of coming to a close here. We're still going to do the lightning round after this, the lightning round of weird, appropriate, traumatic, <laughs> uncomfortable experiences we've been through. But Sam, I want to make space to you around your thoughts as a costume designer around um, how the public, how leaders, how practitioners um, can help support, engage with your work as an artist. Uh, <laughs> well, I just wanted, I, first of all, I just wanted to really speak to, to the Kamloopa process again and, and more to what you were saying. I think Kamloopa, again, has been unique in that 
you know, with those few round table discussions in the, in the beginning and, and, you know, making sure that we had a chance to all get to know each other. I hadn't really had an opportunity before to, to really present myself in the room because I'm so used to like just kind of flitting in and out and like asking questions and like, like my, my world being in wardrobe and whatnot, like I'm, I'm not used to being in, involved in that, in your room or what I would say your room. And so that was so unique for me. Uh, and in terms of like, you know, asking, asking things of companies, uh, I would just say, you know, we just really need to acknowledge the time that it takes that we can't, you know, again, it, it's all about building trust and, uh, we can't do that work to the fullest extent if we don't have that. So, you know, time to go out and, uh, and talk with the community that you're either talking about or, you know, if you're on a traditional territory that the work hasn't specified or whatever, like you need to, you need time to go into that community. You need time to build trust with your performers, with your director and everything, you know, you, you need time to learn about, the things that you're representing, uh, traditional practices and whatnot. Um, that's like the biggest thing that I would say I need. Yeah. Um, you know, just that, that consideration, understanding, again, like tokenism, is this the only play in your season? Why have you chosen this particular play? What does that mean? Why, you know? <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> it it just it needs to be more than just this individual play it it takes if you're going to take if this is going to be your only play or whatever you need to understand the process and the weight and the responsibility that you are bringing with that that you know like you can't i don't know you just can't do it in one show in one season this needs to be ongoing and because of our international relationships because you know we have we have treaties that people need to be you know mindful that they are also part of they are you know settlers are also treaty people like you know it's it's the work has to be met in the middle and it can't just always be you know uh, the labor of the indigenous cast and crew and, and creatives, like it, it needs to be met, I guess. So thank you so much, Sam. And I just, I echo all of that. Um, and your thoughtful diligence and your advocacy work is not just a costume designer and artist, but um, a true um, champion for processes that are ethical and holding people accountable. Um, I'm just so proud that I get to know you and get to work with you uh, in this generation. Yo, yo. Yeah, just to sort of, um, as an actor, the, I have never, the, I've, uh, most of the shows that I've been in, I have not met the design team or didn't know the design team very well. What? Yeah, oh, that's like, true, as an actor, that's true. As an actor, actor, you don't get, you know, until I held my own spaces and, and being a part of Kamloopa, those are the only places where I've actually, like, where we've sat down and been like, you know, outside of sometimes those opening days of like, Donut everyone time? says their name. Yeah. And then that's <laughs> it. And then you never see them again. I'm like, who are you? Who, wait, who is the lighting designer? That's I Jonathan. No He'll idea. be putting you in your thong this season. <laughs> yeah, like, 
you know, and maybe like the only person that you get sort of to know is the costume designer because they have to like measure you or whatever. But even then, like in bigger institutions, it's like a team full of people. They barely know. They, they don't. You, there's no time. You get in, they're measuring you, they're talking to each other, and then you're out of there. Like there's no... There's no t- interpersonal time, right? And so what's beautiful about these spaces and, 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 and working with these designers is that we get to sit around and be like, where are you at today? Like, how are you? Like, you know, and then, and I, 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 like having those relationships make all of us feel more comfortable to all of, for all of us to do the work that we need to do to tell the story. Because each one of us are storytellers. The designers are just as much a storyteller as the performer, as the writer, as the director is. Like, they're, it's, it's everybody coming together to tell this story. Thank you so much, Yo-Yo. You know, I'll give, um, you know, let's do lightning rounds and then we'll do final thoughts. So like in 30 seconds or less, what has been a experience or process that either you got engaged with that you did because I'm sorry, I am not perfect. I have failed. I have done or made inappropriate decisions around um, presenting and creating digital theater. But what's one that's top of mind that you've been a part of where you're like, Oh my God, I can't believe that. I can't believe I did that. Um, While you're all thinking, I'll start. I was saying to Michelle before, when I used to do film and TV auditions, um, I once was like, it was actually for Terrence Malick's The New World. I got two callbacks. I was at the Hyatt in downtown Vancouver and they asked me to like frolic around the lobby something for an audition because that was, you know, Malick is very cinematographic. And I was like, oh my God, I'm not native enough. I got to like native up. So I like went to the mall and like went to like a fast fashion place and bought a like native looking dress and native shoes walk to the sky train like tried to, i was i'm so mortified i did this and that's not okay like not doing homework on a surface level like that's not okay so the other thing i will add is that i you know i once was asked to hold like um an african spear for an indigenous fishing scene <laughs> um what that was a bit of a a uncomfortable conversation around why we can't be doing that uh anyone who wants to go next i let them put i let them put me in walmart moccasins i was like these aren't real moccasins we don't have money for real moccasins okay (laughs) let's just put on some speakers then you know what i mean okay emily what about you Yeah, I was going to say I worked on a super awful show when I, I mean, among many, uh, when I was first starting out as a designer and it was a historic piece and I shouldn't have taken the contract. When I read the script, I was like, this is going to be bad news. But also when you're you're young and you're starting and it's a contract um, and it was, it was a, the first part of a workshop, it was a historical piece that had centered around, um, uh, the Northwest Mounted Police. And then there was a few indigenous characters that I, cost- I was doing costumes when I still used to do that. Um, and I, I was doing super neutral costumes for everyone because I was like, we don't have the budget. We don't have the time. We don't have, we're not appropriating anything. 
um everyone gets like neutral kind of boring costumes because like we really can't do anything else and it's better to be boring than it is to be racist like when you come down to it get that tattooed (laughs) it's better to be boring than it is to be racist and the director kept being like but could you like put some like feathers in their hair and i was like no and i'm like could you do this like no and like i stood my ground but i should just fucking quit like worst if i I would like to like scrub all memory of that process. Oh my gosh, Emily! From my brain. Uh, thank you so much, Sammy Q. What's this something where you're like, oh? <laughs> um, it's not not professionally, but certainly uh, at school. Uh, so I went. Um, I... Oh no! <laughs> Did we lose there? Oh, the lightning man. also affected the internet. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Um, <laughs> no. While we're just waiting on Sam, Michelle, why don't we go to you? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if I have one particular, like, horrible, cringy thing, but I have, like, stolen a lot of music. Like, a lot, a lot <laughs> of shows where they were like, it's fine. And I was like, I don't know, is it fine to, like, just take this, not pay for it? And they're like, it's so can. And then as I became, I, like, really mu- very much learned that you cannot do that and like but for a while because it, it would be the thing where they'll like well do you want it why don't you just compose it and be like i can't compose that in the amount of time that i have so i guess we'll just so just like so much so much stolen music um and when i did go to acting school i used to actually think that it was like um i was very lucky because i was ethnically ambiguous so i could play oh, any the ethically ambiguous auditions yeah um, the same like, thing yeah, so, I was like, lucky me. I yeah, it's not great for me. Yeah. Lucky me. Also, uh, so can is like that magical word that people are like, oh, don't yeah. worry. Here's it's a so tip. Can. Here's a tip for <laughs> producers. Here's a tip for playwrights. Don't write a play that needs a Madonna song. That is as hard to do as flying someone in from the sky. Also. Okay. This is a really great point that I want to bring up that I don't think a lot of writers or creators understand. Mm. And where a lot of uh, anti-racist like can't, practice can't occur is when producers and writers don't understand what it takes to execute a show. And I think if there's mm. one thing that we've talked about here, you know, as we kind of summarize our experiences, and Sam, I'll come to just after this, is the fact that one, the resources for anti-racist work is more because of the racist practices uh, and sector that we've inherited. And two, we as Indigenous creators working with non-Indigenous peoples have to be incredibly competent around what it takes to execute. My work to understand what it takes for Michelle to do a sound show and piece has to be realistic. I have to be responsible about that. We can't set up, and I think this is where, Michelle, you're talking about unreasonable expectations or ill-informed expectations of our teams. We have to understand that it's going to cost money, it's going to cost time, and if you don't show up to work prepared, there's really very little work that we can do. But before we completely close out, Sam, what was this at school, your at school theater piece? (laughs) What happened? We're all dying to know. Sorry, I have really bad internet, um, and it seems to hate when I start talking. um, (laughs) It might be a white man. Be careful. It's a tiny white man. It's a tiny white man controlling your internet. I swear. Must. (laughs) Um, But but yes, uh, the school. 
at school, we did a, a year studying colonialism and indigeneity. And I was super excited because I was like 19 and I was like 19, 20 or whatever. And I was going to be head of wardrobe on one of these. Uh, it was a Daniel David Moses show. Um, and yeah, um, you came to see it after. It was really great. But um, only one of the cast members out of like 14, I think, seven, seven, 14. It was a big cast. Only one of them was indigenous. And at the time I was just like, wow, I get to like have this, cause I hadn't, at that point I hadn't clocked that I could combine indigenous, my indigenous heritage and theater. At that point that didn't occur to me. Uh, and so I was like super excited about the year. I was like, wow, this is great. You know, I'm I'm looking into this, and the, and and now that I look back on it, I'm just like, okay, <laughs> you know, like I'm glad like somebody was there, like in the room, and we had a, a the set designer, Hugh Mohawk, but um, uh, you know, nobody else, and and we had an indigenous director, uh, Yvette Nolan, um, but I don't know, like if it's starting, if it, if it's like that in our school, then you know, what's gonna have issues. Absolutely. So so just thank you, Sam. And I think, you know, theater school is a whole other topic that we can talk about uh, (laughs) in terms of how we are failing young Indigenous people, Black people and people of colour in terms of entering the sector with any equity. But I think for me, what I kind of just to summarize and what I've been hearing is around resources, thought, deep listening, uh, preparedness, um, clear communication between arts leadership. Um, grounding the work via, you know, I would say you, all of you do copious amounts of research and information before you even step into the room. And for me, I think as being as a director and a writer, um, I think there has to be agency for me to curate and collaborate and create teams of international work that elevate um, BIPOC peoples, that elevate non-binary people, gender non-conforming, that elevate marginalized voices. And we're talking about appropriation. It's usually from the oppressed culture usurping more power from a marginalized culture. And so I'm very interested in this internation collaboration, especially as I work towards Break Horizons, where we have um, indigenous women from five different Salish nations, uh, two interior, three interior Salish and one coastal. But that for me, it takes a lot of research. I'm living on the land. I'm visiting those spaces. I'm meeting with elders. I'm hiring cultural consultants. I'm starting that process literally It's going to be four years in advance before that show hits the deck. And that's the type of investment and relational work this Indigenous theater and non-appropriative anti-racist practice takes. If you're not investing in the community before you have to commodify these relationships because a show is happening, you're not doing the work in a way that has any integrity. If you're trying to parlay consultants who you're paying $150 an hour to be the indigenous voice, to be the person of color voice for the entire show, you're not actually doing the work. And for me, what is parallel to the conversation of appropriative practice is the lack of preparedness, responsibility, and accountability that these institutions have to take with regards to resource and ethically creating relationships that protect the performers who are involved so we don't have to worry about um, 
not having the time to do everything that you're saying. I think trying to shove indigenous theater down an imperial or white model is white supremacy, is imperial supremacy. If you don't think you need indigenous teams, if you don't think you need indigenous consultants, if you haven't budgeted for all these things and done your capacity building as an organization to hold all of this work so the director isn't having to do all the work, so the writer, so the designers aren't, then you really have no business taking this on. And that doesn't mean you don't get to do as Sam McHugh said, one show a year. It means that you need to take the budget for the rest of your season and invest it in being not so racist and culturally competent to hold indigenous black POC shows because what's happening right now is not good enough. This needs to be one of many other panels to talk about the lack of work, the lack of competency, the ignorance and racist practices that is currently our present. And I'm really um, having to battle against white supremacist structures and models that I've inherited. And what's to me equally as frightening is indigenous, and this is a whole other issue, but I wanna make a point around it, is indigenous people, practitioners and plays following imperial models that are traumatizing, that are not ethical, that haven't thought about what we're saying, Yolanda's talking about safety, that have a product-based deliverable and don't take accountability for the process being the art. And I think for me, if you take anything leaving this, it's about relationships. You know, I have every one of you on text. I have every one of you on WhatsApp. I attend your events. I understand what's going on in your life because for me as a producer, as a director, that's my responsibility to ensure I can meet you. And I think Michelle and Emily, I've really heard you saying that meeting people in the moment, getting to that arrival, it's my due diligence to understand where designers are at so I can make sure that I understand the space that I create for them is satisfactory for them to be excellent, compelling, and moving. And I don't think directors, and this is my little director rant, I don't think directors do enough advocacy work, responsibility work, and accountability work to ensure their designers are being given spaces, budget, and compensation that accurately reflects the work that they're doing. And directors not knowing what their designers are getting paid is white supremacist bullshit. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You should know, and you can ask, are you getting paid enough? And if they're not, if you haven't helped them with negotiations, that's not good enough. It's not good enough. They shouldn't be siloed to have to champion for themselves and not understand it. As a director, as a creator, I know what I'm asking. And I want everyone to show up to work having enough money. And I say to my designers, and I said to Michelle, I said, what gets you excited to come to work today? What's that number? And let's go get that number. And that is my job as an indigenous producer and as an indigenous director that I hold to my designers, not just my performers, because that's what being a good Salish woman is for me. And I don't hear that enough. I, don't, I hear designers being like, I don't know what to budget. I don't know what to do. That's horseshit. We're supposed to be artistic leaders here, assembling a team. You should know exactly what everyone's getting paid if they're consenting to that number. If nothing else, you should know I'm not getting paid enough because if your designers aren't excited to come to work, the art will suffer. And that's just piss poor leadership to me. And that's the T. Yes. <laughs> yes, Kim. Last words from anyone else before we round out this uh, conversation. Michelle. Just going to say that if uh, anyone, I don't know who's watching this, but if anyone else there, uh, wants to talk through or needs help in figuring out who to talk to. Um, I'm always happy to have those conversations. I think maybe just if you want to get in touch with any of us, you can go through the title block email, which is probably Michael can put in the chat. Um, but like, you know, I, me and Emily have learned uh, some and are continuing learning. And, and if, if what you feel like you want to 
talk about is, uh, you know, I'm, how do I be in the space? Like, you know, I'm happy to have those conversations and give you some perspectives of my experiences or to help you find a person who might be um, the right person to talk to. So I think, I think that, you know, we're real happy to, to have those conversations if you want them. Thank yes. you so much. Thank you. Uh, yeah. Go ahead. I just Lily. wanted to, to also echo that I'm always open for, for conversations. Um, I mean, just in general, I'm a conversational person, but also <laughs> specifically about this. Um, and yeah, just like, say, yeah. That's Thank you. Yes. And, and I think that's a part of two training non-Indigenous collaborators is for you to hold space so that Yo-Yo, who's incredibly busy, and myself and Sam don't have to experience it and keep re-educating. A big part of the team members that I continually work with, like Michelle, like Emily, like Daniela, like Sam, know that they now have this knowledge and as a knowledge holder, it's their responsibility to share it. So please don't take their offers uh, just as kind of performative. I know that they would actually be happy to have conversations with you because that's what anti-racist equity um, creating an indigenous theater sector is going to take. So I think that's it for now. Michael, I'm <laughs> gonna throw it over to you. Thank you. That was, uh, <laughs> I know I just sort of appeared out of nowhere. Hello. <laughs> Uh, thank you so much. Uh, that was an incredible uh, discussion. I, I want to make sure that people know that they can go to thetitleblock.com to find the show notes. This will be released on the podcast feed mm, probably on the weekend, but maybe in a week from now. My life is a bit busy, but uh, I will try to get this out. It's an important conversation. Please share it with your friends. Um, the uh, the last uh, 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 Tuttleblock Live that we had has been viewed over uh, 300 times has been the most popular one we've had. And I think these kind of discussions are the one that we want to foster uh, on this channel and that we need to. Uh, and while the title block uh, certainly looks back at the history of uh, theater um, on the North end of Turtle Island, we have to look forward as well. And one of the things that we talk about on the show a lot is the precarious nature of theater. Uh, and theater creation. And uh, it's a theme that runs through every single conversation I have with designers. Uh, and it is uh, really exciting to know that people are trying to, uh, not only in this ridiculous time of COVID-19, uh, but in trying to figure out a different relationship between uh, creators in order to create a new and vibrant and sustainable and interesting and important um, theater. Uh, so that's, uh, I think that's really, uh, I think it's optimistic. Um, even though at times I get very, <laughs> I feel the darkness. You don't quit theater five times a year like me? You have to quit theater five times a year, at least four with the seasons because of how disappointing it is, Michael. Oh, I know. I know. Well, I mean, I left theater professionally 12 years ago, 14 years ago, so... <laughs> that probably says something. Okay, thank you so much, everyone. And uh, thank you so much for your time. It's very generous. Thank you to the Associated Designers of Canada for helping support this kind of work. Please go to thetotalblock.com. Uh, I've put the uh, email in the chat. So if those on YouTube uh, can get a hold of me, and I can put you in touch with anybody here on the panel. Uh, so thank you very much. And uh, we'll see you next time on the Tidal Block. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.